Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Fellowship Greenville Student Ministry Podcast. Last week, we kicked off the year by talking about our DNA of belonging. This week, we're talking about the enemy of belonging, which is shame. We look at Genesis and we see that our response to sin is to hide from God. But God's response to our sin is to seek us out. And this pattern is seen all through the Bible, most clearly when Jesus becomes man. But it's not just that God seeks us out, it's that he works on us from the inside out, transforming our very hearts. Follow along and we hope you enjoy this message. Hello everyone, welcome again to Fellowship Greenville Student Ministries. My name is Matt Dinsky. I get to serve here. Hello fam, what up fam? I get to serve here as the student pastor to this wonderful, beautiful group sitting in front of me right now. Love you guys so much. Want you to know how loved you are. Want you to know that you have a place to belong here in the family of God. We rejoice that you are here worshiping with us tonight. Uh, Last week, we kicked off the year, um, like the school year we kicked off, and man, we had a phenomenal week. Uh, Guys, God is just so good. He is blessing us so richly. He's bringing so many new faces to this place, and we were celebrating as a team this week of all that God is doing and who he's bringing. We just love that you guys are here. But we kicked off the, the year by kind of casting the vision for our DNA who we are. Uh, You'll see it up on the screen. Some of you guys are rocking the shirts tonight, but our DNA is belong, believe, become. We we want you to know that you have a place to belong. We hope and we pray for you guys regularly that you would come to believe in Jesus. We believe that he's the source of hope and life in this world and there's nothing else. And we want you to become like him because we think Jesus offers the best life imaginable. So we, we kicked off last week by talking through our DNA and specifically our DNA of belonging. This week, uh, is it's the week prior to our epic retreat. And um, every year there's always kind of these like two weeks that fall right before our big retreat. And this year I'm, I'm trying to kind of tie these messages into the retreat. So hey, even if you're not going to epic, if you're like, oh man, I didn't sign up, that's totally fine. You're still getting some good meat in these two weeks. But these are kind of pointing us towards what we're going to be talking about at epic. Last week we talked about belonging. Tonight I want to talk about the enemy of belonging. And that is shame, the idea of shame. Uh, Because the reality is when you feel shame, if you allow shame to control your thoughts, to govern your life, if you allow shame to begin to have control and have dominance, you will not ever feel like you quite belong. Because your mentality won't be, I'm received there, I'm loved there. It will be, I have to perform and do everything correctly to be there and belong there. Shame is vicious. Shame is cruel. It puts a tremendous amount of weight and expectations upon the shoulders of people who are under its rule. And it always promises just a little bit more performance. And this time, you'll kind of earn your way back into favor. And it never delivers. There's always just a little bit more to do. Shame is deceptive. It is cruel. And over the years of doing student ministry, I've had so many conversations with students who are dominated by the idea of shame, who, who literally their life is governed by this idea. I have to do more, perform better, earn more. I'm not enough yet. I have to do a little bit better. I have to uh, do the right things, say the right things, dress the right way, act the right way. Otherwise, I don't have fill in the blank. Love from people, love from my family, love from God. See, shame is so deceptive because it taps into something real. And that's what we call conviction. 
If you follow Jesus, the scriptures say you've been filled with the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God speaks to your heart when you are doing something wrong and convicts you. It lets you know, hey, you are doing something wrong. That's called conviction. Shame, on the other hand, comes in and says, you are something wrong. And there's a big, big difference. The Spirit of God convicts our enemy shames. The Spirit of God says you're doing something wrong. Shame says you are something wrong. And then that eventually becomes your identity, is shame. That that somehow I am something wrong. And so shame tends to lead to performance. Performance tends to lead to earning. Shame, performance, earning. The gospel formula, though, is surrender to the person of Jesus And that leads to receiving what he's done. It's an entirely different story. But if shame is in the center of your life, then that story doesn't make sense to you because you're still focused on performing. And so many people over the years I've watched, they they come to believe in Jesus and they're like, they love, we love Jesus, we love Jesus. And before long, they fall into that very easy trap to fall into, which is, oh no, I've started to mess up. I'm struggling in my faith a bit. I've started to mess up. I'm doubting some things. I'm wrestling with some things. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm dipping back into some of my old life. And instead of feeling convicted and understanding that Jesus still receives us and wants us and desires to give us grace and help us out of those things, instead of conviction, we start to lean into shame. There's no way God could forgive me. There's no way God does want me anymore. I have to clean myself up and earn my way back. And if you remember last week, I talked out of Luke chapter 15, and at the very end of Luke 15, Jesus tells a story about these two brothers, and the younger one runs away from home, wishes his dad was dead, kind of lives a really rebellious, wicked lifestyle, comes to the end of himself, and his plan is, I'll come up with a speech and tell my dad how sorry I am, and I'll earn my way back into the family. And that's kind of our mentality. When we feel that far gone, we feel like we've got to somehow earn this because God already gave us the good stuff once. He won't just give it to us again. It's called shame. So we're going to talk about shame tonight. Shame is the enemy of belonging. So as you guys know, I have children. It's a shocker, I know. I know. It's, it's shocking. I have three. <laughs> Sometimes you guys are so good at this. I've I really feel like you don't know, but I know you do know. I have three beautiful children, a seven-year-old, four-year-old, and a two-year-old. And my little two-year-old girl, her name is Olive. Wow, yeah. (laughs) Olive. (laughs) Tommy, thanks, man. And Olive is on this kick right now of playing hide-and-go-seek with Daddy, with me. And what she'll do, though, is it's so interesting. I don't know if you've ever, like, if you've ever babysat young kids or served in a, in a uh, nursery or whatever, but her, her mentality is so interesting. So what she does, this is her thing right now. She, she comes into the kitchen, and on the bottom of the refrigerator, there's all these magnets. There's dinosaur magnets on the bottom of the refrigerator. And she'll pick one up, and she looks at me, and she goes, Rawr! I'm like, ah! And, and she laughs. She thinks, ah! she thinks it's so funny. And then she takes her little dinosaur magnet. I don't know why it's the dinosaur magnet. I have no idea. But she takes her little dinosaur magnet and she kind of like waddles over to this corner that's right beside the fridge where these two walls meet. And she stands in the corner and her face isn't in the corner. She actually turns her back to the face. So she's still facing me. Like, 
Clearly there is my daughter. There's a little human being right there. But she holds the dinosaur up in front of her eyes. She like mashes it in her face. And in her mind, if the dinosaur is covering my eyes and I can't see daddy, he can't see me. And so she's standing there in the corner hiding and she's like shaking. She's getting so excited and she thinks she's out of sight. And then all of a sudden she'll like lower the dinosaur and like, boo! I'm like, ah, and she laughs and she thinks it's so funny. And then she comes over to me and hands me that dinosaur. And then she goes to the freezer or the bottom part of the fridge and gets a new one and looks at me and goes, rawr, ah, and waddles over to the corner, mashes it in her face. And she thinks she's hiding. This is the game we play for hours at a time. This is just part of the fatherhood experience. Olive loves to hide. She loves to play hide and seek. And she thinks she is is hidden from me, but in reality, she's in plain sight. And what's really, really interesting is that the Bible actually starts off with a very similar story. So if you know the beginning of the Bible, if you know the beginning of the story of the Bible, um, the the Bible, we consider it a book. It's, It's more like a library. It's a collection of books into one, but amazingly, over thousands of years with various authors, all of the books inside of it connect in a cohesive way. And so it is multiple books, but it is one story. And at the beginning of the story of the Bible, you see God as a creator, and he's creating things out of nothing, from scratch, just purely his imagination. Everything's just coming. He's speaking it into existence. He creates the world He begins creating, he calls it good, it's finished, he rests, and within that creation, he creates man and woman. And he gives man and woman allowance and freedom, and he desires for them to live in this goodness that he's created, and he shares his authority with them, and he wants them to rule and rest with him forever in this creation. And in the beginning, if you, if you read the story, you'll see that there's no sin, there's no like brokenness in humanity yet. And so Adam and Eve are created in this perfect harmony in their relationship with God, in their relationship with each other, in their relationship with themselves, and in their relationship with creation, the four relationships of our world. They're in perfect harmony with everything. And in this perfection, this is heaven on earth, And in this perfection, God gives them allowance and freedom with one thing he asks them to trust him with. You're allowed to eat anything, do anything. This is yours. I want you to rule and rest with me forever. But there's one thing, just one thing. I want you to trust me on this. Don't eat of that tree. If you reach out and you take from that tree, you will become broken. In fact, death will enter the world. And I don't want you to die, so trust me on this. Adam and Eve, if you know the story, they're deceived by a talking serpent. It's kind of weird. And they, they reach out. They desire their own autonomy. They desire their own control. They don't want to trust God and allow him to define what good and evil is. They want to define it for themselves. So they reach out to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, of good and bad. And they become broken. This perfection that they were in becomes distorted and broken. And so let's pick up the story. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Genesis 2, starting in verse 8. This is right after they disobeyed God. And this is where we find Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, after they've disobeyed a loving creator God. 
They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This seems like a normal thing, that God the Creator goes on walks with Adam and Eve. Seems like a regular thing that was part of their lives. I don't know if you can imagine that. You're placed in perfection. You're placed in paradise. You've got perfect union with each other, with God, with yourself, with everything, with creation. And you're going on walks with God. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Well, God comes because it's time to go for a walk. He's seeking out Adam and Eve. It's the cool of the day. It might have been early morning, maybe late evening, but it's the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, here's what's so interesting about this, because the story of the Bible, this, this cohesive library of books that has this overarching story that goes through it, the story of the Bible gives us a glimpse that the first time men and women rebelled against God, that they joined the rebellion against God, what's the first knee-jerk reaction, the first instinct? What do they do first? They hide. They don't seek God out. They don't say, oh man, we, we blew it. Like, ah, you told us not to do this thing and we, we, we did it. We're so sorry, could you ever forgive us? They don't seek out God, what do they do? They try to hide. And what's amazing is, pay attention to the language, where do they hide? The Bible says that the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now why is this significant? Because, because it's the trees of the garden, not the one tree that God asked them to trust him with, but the rest of the trees that they were allowed to be in and eat from and be under and be near. All of those trees were permitted by God. And so this very, very interesting thing, it's, it's subtle, but it's there. Adam and Eve, men and women, men and women, the first response to sinning against God is to hide. Where do they hide? They hide among what they're allowed to be around. Or in other words, they hide in plain sight. God has already given them permission to be in the trees, to eat from the trees, to cultivate the trees, and so that's where they go. It's almost, it's almost like they're trying to hide in normalcy. One of the things I know to be true is that sometimes one of the easiest places to hide is in plain sight. And I would suspect that there's a lot of people in this room who feel far from God and feel like your relationship with God is struggling and has been for quite a while. And you can't remember the last time you felt God or felt intimate with God and you don't have the excitement you once did. And, and man, it just, he, he seems distant. You don't know what to do about it. And you're trying. You've tried to read your Bible. You've tried to pray. But it, you're just not feeling it. He doesn't feel close. And it's kind of like, man, what do I do? do? Do I just stop going to church? No, I don't, I don't want to do that. Why? Because I still, I, I, want, I want to give the image that I'm still about this thing. So I'm going to go to the things that actually look like I'm doing something and that I have it all together. I'm going to hide in plain sight. Because one of the things I know to be true is that hiding is not always physical. Like, some, sometimes I think we imagine the story of um, Adam and Eve and, and we think they were hiding like, like crouched, like, oh, here he comes. <laughs> Don't look. Like, they were hiding among the trees. 
They were hiding where they were allowed to be, where they were supposed to be. I think sometimes when we struggle in our faith and we, when we feel distant from God, it doesn't always look like we just drop out of church and we, we, we stop coming and we, we question everything. And Sometimes it actually looks like you become faithful, you come every week, and you're hiding, not physically, because you've put on a mask. You've got the dinosaur like shoved into your eyes. Oh, sorry. You've got the dinosaur shoved into your eyes. But you think because you've got this thing here, you're putting on that mask, you think no one can actually see what you're hiding. Just like my little girl, my little daughter. But God does. He sees, and he sees because he cares. I've had so many conversations with students over the years who have told me this very thing that I'm describing. I feel far from God, I don't know where I'm at in the faith, and I'm so scared to actually let people know it. And I've been just pretending for years like I've actually got it together. It's like, man, why don't, you, why don't you reveal yourself? Ask for help. Let people know you're struggling. Let people know you have questions. I can't. Why? I, I, what would they think? What would my reputation become? How would people look at me? All of those things are understandable, but they're all attached to shame. I have to perform, I have to perform so that I'm earning instead of surrendering so that I receive. God comes in the garden on his walk. Now, God, God, does God know everything? Yes or no? Not a trick question. I think he does. Does God know where Adam and Eve at are in this very moment? Yeah, I think so. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? I don't think that's because God didn't know. I think that's because he wanted to prompt Adam to actually like own up to something. Hey, where are you? It's kind of like what I do with Olive. I see you standing there, little girl. You got a T-Rex on your eyes? Cool. It ain't tricking me. Where are you? Like, I'm prompting this thing. I think God is prompting Adam in this moment. Where are you? Look at what Adam says. He said, oh, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you you were naked? Like that whole vocabulary, that idea of you being naked, that's linked to shame. Who told you that you were exposed? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the woman you gave me classic, classic man, doesn't own up to a thing, just blames the woman. It was her, dude. Like everything was peachy until you created her. Mm-hmm. She led me astray. The woman, the woman you gave me, it's even like nuanced a little bit towards God. The woman you gave me, she, it was her, she gave me the fruit of the tree. And I ate it, but it was her. The Lord looked at the woman. He said, what's this thing you've done? Look what the woman does. She own it? Nope, she blames. Ooh, look, man, there was this snake and he talked, which is freaky. And I didn't know what to do because I've never interacted with a talking snake before. And he talked about this fruit and it sounded so, and I ate it. But it was the snake. 
The first response of man and woman when they sin against God is to hide and blame. Hide and blame. And we still do the same things today. We hide in places that they don't look like we're hiding. We're among the trees. We're where we're allowed to be, but we're hiding a lot. And we don't really own up to the things that are actually destroying us. Our first response to joining the rebellion, our first response to sinning is to hide and blame. What is God's first response? God's first response to sin is to seek us out because it's time to go on a walk. That's God's first response. Hey, guys, I'm here. It's, it's, it's the cool of the day. Where are you at? I, I want to walk with you. Did God know what had happened? I think so. God's first response seems to be seeking out his children. His first response is to seek and find. Ours is to hide and blame. And so if you follow the story of the Bible, again, compilation of 66 books, but it's a story that weaves itself through all of them. If you follow the story of the Bible, there's this theme that's progressing. About a year ago, I spent six weeks talking about this idea of God created heaven on earth. And then when we joined the rebellion, heaven on earth became heaven and earth. And they became these two separate things. And the whole story of the Bible is this story about how God is bringing these realms back together. And Jesus overlapped them and will one day bring all things back to himself. The book of uh, Colossians chapter 1 says that Jesus is reconciling all things unto himself. He is making all things right. The story of the Bible is that what was broken in the garden, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, with ourselves, and with creation, is all being made right through the work of Jesus, through the performance of us? No. But through the performance of Jesus, God in the flesh. That's the overarching story of the Bible. And so from Genesis chapter 2, we see this story beginning to unfold, how God is beginning to reconcile all things to himself. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 3 is reconciling all things to himself and making all things right. And the narrative is that God is at work and he's inviting his children to walk with him again and again and again. And yet we see we see that God's children continue to hide and continue to blame. The theme of the Bible is God pursues and invites and God's children hide and blame over and over and over. But all the way from Genesis to Revelation, this idea is that God will one day make all things right. The entire Old Testament points ahead to this person who is coming. We know him as Jesus. The entire New Testament points back to the one who came. That is Jesus. Jesus is the hinge point of the scriptures and the hinge point of history. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, it is a grueling six-hour process of him um, not just being beaten to the point of death and lingering there, but it is a grueling six-hour process of his body slowly, slowly, slowly suffocating on his own blood. It's called asphyxiation. It was why crucifixion was so brutal. It wasn't just the violence. It wasn't just the, the beatings you would take. It was the idea that eventually your legs would give out until you suffocate in your own blood. And if your legs didn't give out, Roman soldiers would often break your knees so that you would have to begin to suffocate. It was brutal. And at the end of that six hours, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And with every little bit of ounce of strength he has left, 
he musters one last push off of his feet to get air into his lungs just enough to say this one phrase, it is finished. It is finished. Now notice in the story of the Bible, there's something happening here. Things have been leading up to this moment with Jesus on the cross. Jesus does not say, I am finished. Doesn't say that. Because as we know, he's not. He comes back. But he does say, it is finished. What's the it? What's, what just got finished on the cross? Have you guys ever wondered this? When Jesus utters these words, when he uses his last bit of strength to push himself up through the pain one more time to get air in his lungs just enough to say this, it is finished. What is finished? What's it? There's a lot of roads that that converge here. Honestly, a lot of answers are right at this moment. But the one that I want to focus on is this continued theme that we see throughout the Bible that started in the garden. And that is... That God had created a reality which his children were in a perfect harmony of relationship with him, with themselves, with, with each other, and with creation. And when that got broken, when we joined the rebellion, the Bible tells a story of how God continually pursues and invites and we hide and blame. Leading up to the point where God would come himself one day one day would come in the flesh and make all things right. We know that to be Jesus. We believe that to be Jesus. So what is finished on the cross? What is it? I want us to look at this verse in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says this about the work of Jesus on the cross. Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He's talking about Jesus. So let's hold this verse on the screen for a minute. Because I want us to, to, to understand and break this down. Paul says this. He's reflecting on the, on the crucifixion of Jesus. He's reflecting on the story of the Old Testament. New Testament wasn't written yet. It's, it's in the process when Paul's writing this. But he's reflecting on Jesus and he's reflecting on what God did that day on the cross. And he says, it was for our sake that he made him, Jesus, who, uh, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What Paul is saying is this. Keep that verse up there just for a minute. What Paul's saying is this. Jesus, who did not know sin, or in other words, never sinned in his life, took on our sin at the cross. Not just in a way that's like, all right, world, give me your sin. I'll mount it on my shoulders. I will carry the weight of all of your rebellion. Not just that, although that would be amazing in and of itself, It doesn't say that he made him to take our sin, which is still true. What does it say? That God made him to be sin, who knew no sin. One of the most astounding, remarkable, offensive, and scandalous things about the death of Jesus is that we believe no other religion around the world is like this, guys. No one even claims to be anywhere close to this. We believe that human beings were created to be in a perfect relationship with God. We rebelled, we joined the rebellion, we messed it all up. God has chased us throughout history knowing that we can't make this right on our own because shame and performance never earn our way back into a right standing with God. Knowing that we can't make this right on our own, God became us and 
lived the perfect life that we were always designed to live with God in the garden, lived the perfect life, and didn't just take our sin, became our sin at the cross. So that when Jesus is dying on the cross, it's not just that our sin is somehow there with him, it's literally that our sin is being nailed to the cross. He who knew no sin became sin. Sin was nailed to the cross that day. And one of the most amazing scenes in all of history is, is Jesus, God willingly giving himself on our behalf. And Jesus is crying out in this moment. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a quote out of Psalm 22, a psalm that David wrote. In the entire life of Jesus Christ, the entire life of Jesus, Jesus taught us to relate to God as Father. It's revolutionary. Aramaic word is Abba, Father. Jesus prays and it's always Father, Father, Father. A familiar, a familial term, a term of endearment, a term of intimacy. There's only one time in the life of Jesus where he did not call God Father but instead he calls him God, and it's right here when he becomes sin. Signifying to us that the intimacy between the Son and the Father for the briefest moment in history was severed because he who knew no sin became it, became the curse to nail death and sin to the cross, to kill it forever. And then through his resurrection, to show us that sin and death has been conquered forever and that through faith in me, you are no longer servants to death and sin, but you have life and grace. Jesus didn't just take our sin. That's true. He did, but he became sin for the briefest moment, became it, nailed it to the cross, sacrificed himself as sin. So that, why? Why would he do that? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So here's what this means. You guys remember in the garden how we were created to be in perfect relationship? There was no sin, there was no brokenness. You remember Genesis? Guys, wasn't that long ago? Please, someone, thank you. Throw me a bone, guys. Throw me a bone. Okay, thank you. Jesus lived the life we were always intended to live with God in a perfect state, in our perfect relationship. Instead, we rebelled. Jesus lived the perfect life we were supposed to live and then became our sin, and here's the great transfer. He became our sin, and we become his righteousness. The perfection that he achieved is now given to us. It's given to us. Did you earn it? (laughs) No, fam. Run through the Ten Commandments right quick, and you realize real quick, I'm not perfect. Count up about 30 minutes, and in that 30 minutes, just ask her, did did I have like any sinful thoughts in that 30 minutes? Probably. You come to to the conclusion real quick, I don't think I'm perfect. And yet, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might have the righteousness of God, the right standing with God, The way we were created to be in the garden is now given to us. I was watching this this debate on the internet. Uh, You you guys familiar with like this this concept? Sometimes people will go to like college campuses with like a microphone and just post up. 
And there'll be these people that stand there and it might be like, ask me anything about Christianity or whatever. And I was watching this one and this guy was standing there and this girl walks up to the other microphone and she says, hey, I have a question. And the guy says, all right. And she says, what is required to get into heaven? It's a fair question. What is required to get into heaven? And the Christian dude over here says, hey, I'm just going to answer the question you're asking me. I'm just going to give you the answer. She says, okay. She says, what's required to get into heaven? This guy says, perfection. She's like, Ooh, okay. She asks a second question. She goes, well, okay, would you say that there's people in heaven right now? The guy standing there goes, yes. The girl looks so confused. She's like, uh, and he's like, I'm just answering the questions you ask. I'm just answering. I'm not explaining anything. I'm just giving you the simple answers. Third question she asks, so explain to me, you're saying that in order to get into heaven, we have to be perfect. The guy's like, yes. And you think that there's people in heaven right now? He says, yes. She says, so there's been people who have lived their lives and they're perfect? He goes, no. And she's like, all right, dude. So <laughs> explain this to me. And he goes, oh, no problem. Let me explain it to you. And he breaks down this verse that we just read, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He, he, he starts going through the whole gospel of how we've rebelled, but we were created with intent in a perfect relationship with God. And the whole Bible story is leading up to this point where perfection itself becomes sin itself, but then gives perfection to that which was sinful. And so there are people in heaven, but it's not because they've been perfect. It's because they've been made perfect through the death of Jesus. That's the gospel. This is why our faith is so radical. It's because it depends nothing on your performance. You can't earn it. You can't stack up enough good works. Nada. And Jesus is like, y'all, I got it. I'll live the life. I'll give it to you. I'll conquer death. I just want to walk with you. Stop hiding. Stop letting shame dictate life. Receive what I've achieved, what I've done. But You'll look at me and you'll say, but Matt, all right, like, <clears throat> moment of honesty here, this sounds really good, sounds really compelling, but let's be real. I'm not perfect, right? Like, in your head right now, you're like, dude, I, I don't understand that verse because <laughs> I'm not perfect. And yet you're telling me that I've been made right with God because the perfection of Jesus has somehow made me, somehow or another, in God's eyes, the way that we were created in the garden, like, but I'm not perfect, can anyone relate to that? Okay, thank you. Throw me a bone, guys. A quiet church is usually a dead church, so like, g give me something here. Oh, thank you, brother. Thank you. So good, so good. Would anyone in this room claim perfection? I don't think so. So all of us would say, I, I, I don't understand this. All right, so give me. I'm, I'm breaking down the whole Bible very quickly. I understand that, but give me. You have been made perfect in your position before a holy God, but not yet in your practice before a holy God. You've been made perfect in your position before a holy God, though not yet in your practice. So think about it this way. When God looks at you, he looks at you through the filter of the blood of his son, which has achieved the sacrifice needed that perfection could be given to your account. Anybody ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Yeah. Oh, wow, a lot of you guys. Uh, full disclosure, I never have. Okay. Um, but the author, John Bunyan, great last name. I bet he didn't get bullied at all in grade school. John Bunyan wrote another book, not Pilgrim's Progress, but called Grace Abounding. 
Anybody ever at Grace Abounding? Far less hype for Grace Abounding, which is a shame. But in Grace Abounding, Paul Bunyan writes this. He takes on the, the voice of God and he says this, sinner, it's like God's talking to us, sinner, that's us, you think because of your sins and infirmities, I cannot look upon you. You ever felt that way? Like, God, I've sinned so much, there's no way, there's no way you'd want me, you'd want to forgive me, you'd want to be with me, you'd want to walk with me, you couldn't even look at me, I've sinned so much. You ever feel that way? Paul Bunyan says, he writes as if God were speaking, he says, sinner, you think because of your sins and infirmities, I cannot look upon you, but behold, my son is by my side, and upon him I look, and I will deal with you as I'm pleased in him. The righteousness of Jesus has pleased the wrath of God, and he deals with us as he's pleased in his son. You are perfect in your position before a holy God, though not yet in your practice. So you'll look at me and you're like, but I'm not perfect. No, you're not in your practice. But positionally before God, he sees you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because of what you've done? No! Because of what Jesus has done. And when you begin to to approach your relationship with God like this, there is no allowance for shame because shame clings to performance that somehow you've got to earn this and you can't earn perfection. But Jesus did. You don't perform to earn. You surrender to receive the perfection of Jesus. Paul begins to write about this concept all through the New Testament, Paul would kind of say it like this. I'm summarizing a lot here, but Paul would kind of say it like this. Hey, you're perfect before a holy God, so become that which you already are. Become perfect since God sees you with the righteousness of Jesus. Become that which you already are. Let's take a look at one verse that Paul writes. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul begins the book of Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you all and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayers with supplication and joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now and Philippians 1, chapter six, ver, 1 verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about the very thing that we've been talking about. This idea that God has started something in you. And just as God was faithful all throughout history, God is going to be faithful in your life. And what he started, he will complete. And so you may at times feel like, dude, I am so beyond hope. I am stumbling and struggling. And man, I, I just don't even know what to make of my faith right now. Do you believe that God is powerful enough to complete in you the work he began? When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, did he mean, hey, it's finished for a while, but yo, you got some work to do. Hey, it's finished for like a thousand years, but, you know, come 11th century, it doesn't apply anymore. Or did he mean it is done? It is finito. There is no more work to be done in terms of making you right with God. Jesus says it is finished. Paul says that he who began a good work in you 
Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So the question is, do you have faith that what Jesus finished on the cross actually was enough? And if the answer to that question is yes, I think Jesus' work on the cross was enough, then it's the same working in you. Jesus is working in you. Do you believe that, that that work will be finished? If the answer is no, then it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. How, how can you believe that the work of Jesus for the entire universe was sufficient, but the work of God in your life is somehow never going to get done? If you have faith here, we have faith here. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Now, here's the cool thing. If you have the eyes to see it, what we've done tonight is look at the massive 10,000 feet view where we started in the beginning of the Bible and we've slowly zoomed in to the individual level, like right up nice and close, right on you. We can see your pores and everything. It's so nice. We're right in there with you. The language of Genesis is God began creating, finished creating, and called it good. The language of Philippians 1.6 is he who began a good work in you will complete it. The story of Genesis is this kind of massive view of the universe and the cosmos and, and humanity's rebellion against God and what God's going to do about it throughout all of history. Philippians 1.6 is what is God doing in your life, specifically your life. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God. Parallels Genesis. God is at work in you. Are you perfect? Mm, not in your practice but the encouraging thing about the Bible, about the story that we believe in, is God, what does God do in the midst of sin? Think back to the garden. What does God do? Seek you out and desires to go on a walk. Friends, enough with the hiding and enough with the blaming. Jesus has made you right in front of a holy God. And Jesus' spirit is in you and desires to now make your practice right so that your practice lines up with your position. God is still seeking out his children and still desires to walk with them. It's on us to decide if we'll receive that or not. In college, I was meeting with a professor. And uh, I was struggling with some thoughts in my faith, some, some sin issues. I just couldn't seem to... Conquer, I had a lot of questions about what does it mean to like, be with Jesus on the daily? What, what does that look like? How do you actually like, not just make this a, I don't know, like I decided this when I was younger. How do you actually like, live this out day to day? What does Monday look like? What does Tuesday look like? I mean, I just had all these questions. And I remember my professor looked at me and he said, he said, Maddie, you do not understand what grace is, brother. I said, what do you mean? He said, dude, Christians who understand the love of God for them burn through grace the way a 747 jet burns through fuel. Just burning it. And I actually like took offense to it. I was like, oh, the blasphemy, what? To abuse grace? <laughs> you know, my theological mind immediately went to, oh, Romans chapter six, Paul says, should we abuse grace? Like, and he's like, Paul's everything. Listen to what I'm saying. You perceive grace as it exists for when you sin. You need to begin to see grace 
as the very breath that you draw in the morning. You couldn't breathe but for the grace of God. You couldn't process thoughts but for the grace of God. You couldn't take a bite of food but for the grace of God. You couldn't walk. You couldn't have relationships. You couldn't build friendships. You cannot dream. You cannot remember the sweet thing. You need the grace of God in every second of every day of your life. It is not just response to your sin. It is actually the very fuel by which Christians operate. And it was a revolutionary idea for me. It took years to begin to understand how the grace of God fuels every second. But it first began with me receiving the work Jesus had done and letting go of the idea of shame and earning and working my way into something and understanding Jesus has already achieved it. My role is to receive it and walk in faith, trusting that what God began in me he will bring to completion one day as I walk with him. And that, my friends, is the story of the gospel, the story of the Bible, reduced into like 40 minutes. So hopefully you got something there. <laughs> the point is, you can't earn it, so receive it. You need the grace of God every second of every day. It's not just response to your sin. It's the very thing that empowers you to breathe. So embrace it. And walk with the Father because he's desperately seeking you, even if you're in hiding. He sees you, and he still wants to go on a walk with you. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the story of the gospel and the story of the Bible. That you've sought us out since the beginning. You've called us out of hiding. You invite us into a relationship. Father, we thank you that your spirit um, does not shame us when he convicts us. He does not belittle us. Father, my mind is brought to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So through our faith in Jesus, by your word, we are uncondemnable. And so, Father, we pray we would cling to the work of Jesus on the cross we would believe that it is finished, that we have been made right with you because of the righteousness of Jesus given to us and that our sin has been dealt with once and for all. And though we're not perfect in our practice, we, would, we ask that we would cling to our position before you, that we are accepted as children, that we are allowed to be in front of you and with you and that you have cleansed us of our sin. And Father, as your spirit begins to work in our lives Refining our practice, we pray that shame would have no place, but that we would forever and constantly be reminded of the grace of God, that we would receive it, apply it, never fall into the trap of earning, of trying to clean ourselves up, but that, Jesus, we would invite you into the ugliest moments of our life, that in the midst of our sin, we would say, Jesus, I need you here. I need you in this struggle. I need you in this addiction. I need you in this response, in this attitude, in this action, that we would invite you into the ugly as well as the beautiful. Spirit, we pray you would help us. We thank you so much for working in our lives. We pray and we claim that shame would have no dominance, no rule, no authority in our lives. And we pray, Father, I pray for this room, that this would be a room of students, of teenagers, of adults, who receive the grace of Jesus instead of trying to achieve some works-based idea and understand who they are in Jesus, their position before you, how sweet that is.
Father, I prayed we'd, we'd go on a walk with you. I pray that we'd, yeah, that we'd walk with you. We ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.